It's Monday, September 18th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 131 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation um, about a pretty broad range of things. Thank you for joining us for that conversation between myself and another musician, another creative person. Today, that musician, that creative person is composer, writer, multi-instrumentalist, thinker, uh, uh, wanderer, Dan Kaufman. Dan Kaufman's on the show today, and I am really, really excited about today's show. Today's a good one. Today on the show... Dan Kaufman. Before we get into it with Dan, just a couple of things to talk about. Uh, One, do you hear that construction work in the background? It's fucking maddening, and I've got to record this now because I'm about to get on a plane, but I promise, you know, unlike the episode with Ethan Iverson a couple weeks ago, I'm going to try and record all this stuff at night so that that sound isn't there. It's driving me a little bit crazy, and I I don't know how long this is going to be going for, but uh, I'm kind of losing my mind over this. Sorry. Um, I want to remind you, uh, just this past Saturday, two days ago, I released uh, the first digital release in the 5049 digital uh, series. It's a double live album with my trio, Blood Mist, which is me, Toby Driver, Mario Diaz de Leon. Two multi-track recorded concerts. Uh, the record's called Chaos of Memory. I'm really proud of it. This music exists really well in a live format, and uh, quite honestly, all of the money generated from the sale of this uh, download is going to the production of our next studio record. So, so that that's what's up with that. Uh, check it out. Go to go to the five zero four nine website. There's a link right there. It'll take you to the Bandcamp. And you know, even if you don't feel like uh, buying it, take a listen. Let me know what you think. I'm proud of it. I think it's good music. Blood Mist, Chaos of Memory. It's up there now, and there's going to be more stuff coming soon. Today on the show, Dan Kaufman. Now, Dan, I'll just say it again. I'm really happy with this episode. This episode, in a lot of ways, represents what I think is just a solid episode of this podcast. Um, I've been aware of Dan for quite a few years, uh, primarily, and I think for anyone else who's aware of him, it'll also be through this, through his band, Barbez. Barbez is a band that has existed uh, in, in some, you know, somewhat a mutating form. You know, some members have come and gone, uh, but Dan has maintained a very central identity uh, of the music through Barbez. Uh, it's, it's. I'm going to describe it as a wanderer's music. Um, through uh, you know a number of records and concerts and sort of conceptual projects, um, Barbez weaves a very evocative mix of of avant rock of of Eastern European melodies. Um, he put out a record on Zadik a few years ago that uh, was like his project is Paul Celan project. Paul Celan is one of the great poets, uh, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, uh, and he's a poet who I really became familiar with through Dan. And I first met Dan. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was organizing a Passover Seder, um, and and we wanted to introduce a musical component. 
um, the great rabbi Andy Bachman, who, you know, for, for New York Jews who are looking at things through a more progressive lens, Andy is, you know, an important rabbi for a lot of people. He's a friend of mine. Um, I thought it would be cool to have Dan provide some music for the Seder. What I didn't realize at the time, you know, what Dan came back with, he said, I'd love to do it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll bring in some of this uh, Paul Celan project that I'd worked on. I didn't realize at the time, but both Dan and Andy uh, are Jews, liberal Jews from Wisconsin. And both um, have, have a very strong personal investment in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and, and Wisconsin, you know, sorry if I'm going off the top of music, but, you know, this is, it's important for today's talk. You know, Wisconsin historically has been a very liberal state. Uh, and in this last presidential presidential election, you know, uh, Wisconsin went the way of that evil orange fuck. And it's not just something that happened overnight. It's something that, you know, is, is very traceable through through a lot of really questionable uh, political activities. And in addition to being a really amazing, soulful musician, um, Dan is very busy uh, as a writer. He's published a lot of stuff in the New York Times and the New Yorker, and he's currently writing a book about what happened in Wisconsin. Not like this Hillary Clinton book, What Happened, that focuses on like a 16-month period, but Dan's really looking at what's happened in the last 50 years uh, that has allowed for someone like Scott Walker to become governor, that has allowed for, for this state that was once a true progressive bastion in the United States to go the way of the orange idiot fuck. So we talk a good bit about that today. Um, Dan is a really in interesting guy. You know, uh, we, we I, I want to hang out more with Dan. You know, we've we've kind of gotten coffee once or twice. We did this podcast, but he's one of those guys that you could really go all night with on a range of topics, from music to, to poetry to instrumentation to to politics. And I'm just really happy with how today's show turned out. I'm putting it up today because uh, Barbez, Dan's band, has a new record coming out on October 6th. And like all of his projects, it's, it's a really ambitious one. The new project, the, uh, the new record, is called For Those Who Came After, Songs of Resistance from the Spanish Civil War. I just got a copy of it in the mail yesterday, and um, I, I, I've listened to it very quickly. Uh, it's, I'm going to spend more time with it. The art, the layout, the notes, its this is a real document. And I would strongly encourage all of you to check it out. If you want to find out more about this record, if you want to find out more about Dan, if you want to find out more about Barbez, go to barbez.com. That's B-A-R-B-E-Z.com. Now, the reason I'm putting the show up today is uh, they're doing a special record release concert for this, for this record for those who came after. It's happening October 4th at Joe's Pub in New York City. And um, you guys, if you're in the area, you should go. That's going to be a good night of music. October 4th, Joe's Pub, Barbez presents the music from their new record for those who came after. And that's it. Um, if you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it in iTunes. Uh, I got a lot of good stuff coming up. I've had some pretty interesting conversations lately. And, uh, you know, maybe check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. Get throwing a few bucks. It helps. Um, and that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Dan Kaufman. Far this is a nice. I got it at Mass. 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 Mass.
know, but I have a similar. It's on Avenue A. I used to work in the used book business, so I was always looking for first. Wait, you worked in the used book business? Mm-hmm. Doing what? Well, I was just my first job in New York was at the Strand. I was one of those refugees, you know. Wait, you worked at the Strand? Mm-hmm. Like, did you have a department, or were you sort of? I like... was. I got promoted to the cashiers after a few weeks in fiction. Is that the better job? In theory, you were a little bit away from. It's sort of like a kind of Marxist bookstore, where it's like, you <laughs> know, you. Kind what of, I want in a bookstore. <laughs> yeah, well, well, but also like in terms of the organization, it's sort of like a factory bookstore, and in, in the sense that the people on the floor were kind of the lowest. That's where they put the new guys. Tier, yeah, and some people that they don't think like that have maybe <laughs> less social skills, to put it gently, uh, might just stay there. And then, um, okay. in theory, you got you got a little bit more bread if you were a cashier. Really? Yeah, that's it, funny. I would. I thought... mean, it was kind of a drag, but it was also a union job. It was Are you kidding me. United Auto Workers. Yeah. When I go to the Strand, I, and I go there pretty frequently i feel like the, the dudes on the floor are the people that need to know what the fuck is up when it comes to uh i think it's changed a lot since then this was like in an era where it was like kind of junkies scoring at lunch hour really um yeah union and, square was pretty scary yeah and it was like that was the job that you could just get and you could live so cheaply in new york Wait, especially in Winsburg. i lived moved here in 91 from, from wisconsin from, uh, wisconsin right you know. yeah. uh but, you know, for me, like, and this kind of maybe speaks to my own failures in life. Like, I've always thought, like, the coolest jobs in the world are record store and bookstore jobs. Yeah, and I had a better bookstore job later that at Skyline Books, which is a more, like... It was in New York? Yeah, it was on 18th Street. It's gone now, sadly. Uh-huh. But uh, Zorn used to come in there a lot. Actually, he had really good first editions. Um, this is Rob Warren. And that was, like, more, like... Then I would do some more buying stuff. I would right. look for first. And... So do you have... You're, you're a book collector. Uh, not really. No, but I have some nice stuff that I accumulate. I, just, I like nice. I like your. I like your covering. I like th- <laughs> yeah. that. Well, see, These I got great. It. I I like the hamburger ones, even though some people criticize it. I but. was told that the Paul Salan to get was the hamburger ones. That's what I think. Um, it was what I was first introduced to. What's people's criticism of it? Um, a little bit. Um, what's the word? Fu- not fussed. St- not I'm not finding the right word, but some combination of like too literal and a little clunky and yet not um I think they're the best um he's a poet himself right and um but there's you know um there's a it's so difficult with Ceylon because it's so particular and he kind of invented a lot of words and and things well he was i mean a master of several languages yeah totally and and he also changed and bent the language to fit uh this sort of desire to express the inexpressible but hamburger i think does a good job and actually he collaborated i mean he would correspond with ceylon he knew him right and say like you know get his feedback so that's one thing in its favor sure but um there's another guy named pierre juris who's probably my second favorite, who does it in totally unconventional way. It's like more like uh, a figurative interpretation. And you've read these side by side to sort of... Yeah, well, I, will, I will know these some poems pretty well. Right. So, um, and I don't know the German, but it's kind of... It just becomes on like kind of what you like, I suppose. I mean, the little I know of Ceylon, I feel like the German would be a really compelling read because I felt like he was striving to be oh, yeah. like a native yeah. German speaker. 
He was a native German speaker. See, they, they grew up in Chernovich, and his first language was German. Right. And that was a German-speaking. The Jews were like this German-speaking. German was like the high culture. It was, a, it was an area that switched a lot. It was Romania, I think, when technically... But so, the lingua, lingua franca of the Jewish community was German. Right. And he learned... And one of the most painful things about him was he felt like he was a better exemplar of... German culture and yet was rejected by it. like he grew up on Rilke and all these right. cats um, and I think it's sort of like the people you know how the people from the provinces are always better than the people in the center you know yeah, what I mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. He tri- they tried so hard to absorb German culture they had the highest aspirations for it and he was a romantic you know he read Nietzsche but, the, all but that was like you know now that anti-semitism is like really coming back in style yeah um, <laughs> I was sort of rereading some of my uh, my materials and yeah. I was just sort of reminded of like I mean I never forgot this but like a lot of the anti-semitism in Europe was always sort of based around the language of the Jews and their inability to ever truly uh, represent or express real you know German ideas because they're inhibited and that's well, and Yiddish yeah. is the the, the right. Testament it's close. It's the what the what good old Freud called the narcissism of small differences, where <laughs> the um you know it was like more their reaction because Jews were in a weird way in some ways more German than the Germans. How so? Well, they they had they knew both their own culture. And you know how like African Americans often know white culture and their own. They know because they're outside of it, so they they can see it differently. So the Jews were very driven to assimilate German culture, and they knew it very well. And then they also had this other thing. Um, so they were very close to it, but it was like almost like I think there's some people that say that it was too frighteningly close. That that is one of the sources of. German anti-Semitism was, and, and the Jews there were very assimilated. Yeah, you know, so they were not like these kind of poor Eastern European Jews black that were cloaks black and cloaks, candles frocks, on Friday night, yes, yeah, pass, matzah crumbs, um, <laughs> you know, uh, like schlepping around shopping bags. Right, you know, they right. were like refined. They could talk about all these high German literary concepts, and, and Ceylon was. You know, obviously representative of that. It's funny. I didn't. I I saw the movie The Pianist when it came out. Did you see it? I didn't see it. I I, I should have. Uh, well, I, I remember really not liking it okay. at all. That was Polanski, right? Polanski. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was. I never. One thing I. And you you forget this. You know, similar to the way that you know Baghdad was once like the Havana of the Middle East. Right. Warsaw. Yeah. was like the center of culture at the time and you see this this character that Adrian Brody plays who's this like in the mix uh Jewish piano player right. and right. that you you for, I forgot or it you know my family's from Poland that that, that Jews ever had that position yeah. in yeah. Poland in Warsaw specifically yeah. which was a really bust you know had the war not happened like Warsaw would be would hold a very different place in the eye of the world. I definitely, definitely. Have you played there? We have not played. You've played in Poland. No, actually. Are you kidding me? We got rejected by the big Jewish it's... music festival for being, I think it was a little too out. The Krakow like, Festival? Yeah. 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 I mean, they were, they were open to it, but then it was just like too, it was neither. I mean, it's one problem that we, we sometimes experience where we're neither kind of here nor there. Yeah. In some ways, like, I think everybody has this with certain things certain gigs certain communities and it's like 
Um, that festival is about entertainment. Yes. That festival is yeah. about yeah. Polish people who want to enjoy the quirky, fun aspects of yeah. Jews uh, while forgetting about the fact that exactly. you know, they were trading and, their uh, lives for kilos of sugar. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, I don't think our Ceylon stuff is particularly danceable. The Roman Jewish stuff is maybe a little more that way. But even still, it's it's also coming from a rock background right. to some degree. So. But they were really nice about it. They liked it. They just didn't think it worked. And, right. Uh, you know, it's not so. fun to... Yeah, and, but I mean, I think it could have. Like, we played some big... It t- should have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah. all that shit, whether it's like, you know, the yeah. Knitting Factory Radical Jewish Culture stuff, like... Yeah. I mean, you, you're friends with Anthony Coleman, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Anthony, I, I had him... Because uh, I love Sephardic Tinge so much. Uh-huh. That was kind of... When my wife and I were, like, kind of courting, we took a trip to... Portugal, and that was kind of like you know each trip has like a soundtrack, soundtrack to it, yeah. yeah. And that first record, I, I just it really hit me. It's like that Irving Fields, but like totally. meets Cecil kind of. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. And the band is just great. Slam. So we we did uh, a gig with them at Poisson Rouge, and uh, and uh, yeah, I like Anthony a, a lot. I mean, I don't know him super well, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, so you moved from Madison to New York? Madison to New York. You yeah. went to college in Madison. I dro- I was in music school for two years as a classical guitarist. Dropped out, yeah, because I just didn't realize I didn't want to be a classical guitarist, right. and I wanted to. See- I grew up in Madison, so there was like something. Oh, I think you're of- from Milwaukee. Mm-mm. No, no. Madison is like Madison- or was. A- it was great. It was great. Was great. It is great, but it's uh, when you grow up there, you know, you always want the wider world, and we were all. You know, I think it was just wanderlust. And um, Were your parents teachers? Or- my dad was a prof there. Yeah. He was from New York originally, from Queens. My mom was really involved in Jewish education. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there wasn't much to do for her there. She was from Chicago originally. And uh, so she was never real happy there. Um, although she grew more happy. They were very political too, like um, very involved in the civil rights movement. My My uncle, my dad's brother, was the teacher of Tom Hayden and mm. kind of helped form SDS at the University of Michigan. He was a prof. Were your parents socialists? Mm, yeah, probably without like d- proclaiming right. it. Um, right. But yeah, they were very left. They were very involved with African-American civil rights movement in Chicago. Mm-hmm. My dad was an urban planner. He studied with a guy named Louis Mumford, famous urban theorist. And uh, he... Focused a lot on racial segregation. I mean, you could learn a lot about institutional racism by looking at urban planning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was his field. I mean, yeah. he studied older American cities, and, and early on he was really focused on housing. And uh-huh. um, and then he later talked about food systems and, like, food deserts and how there's no decent food in the ghetto and, and so on. And he worked with this really great organization in Milwaukee called Growing Power, this black farmer who bought this abandoned property and kind of right in the middle of the worst neighborhood in Milwaukee um, developed, like grew all this food. Mm-hmm. And my dad became president. They're very, they were very close and they, you know, had jobs for people in the community and stuff like that. So he was very socially active. Did and you it, go to summer camp growing up? I went to Jewish summer camp. I yeah. went to Interlock in, uh, <laughs> not the music camp, but the Jewish right? camp in Northern Wisconsin. That you know, I think Andy, the the rabbi, also Andy Bachman, he went there too. That makes sense. Yeah, 
but he's a little older than me. But yeah, so we went there. I went there for three summers. It's way up in northern Wisconsin. We had, uh, you know, it was fun. Summer camp is the was my favorite part of growing yeah. up, yeah, without yeah. question. Sleep, where, where did you go? I went to Bucks Rock. Okay. Do you know Bucks Rock? No. no. It's this uh, like socialist performing arts camp in um, New Milford, Connecticut. It was okay. started. Uh, it's all based on like Montessori learning. Okay. It was started, you know, to like really inspire like socialist, uh, humanist values in in children, and then very quickly it turned into like a really elite summer camp for rich Jewish kids wow. from New York. Wow, <laughs> where did you grow up? I grew up upstate, okay. uh, but I went on a scholarship. There's okay. no way my family could have ever yeah, afford yeah, that yeah, camp. Yeah, but it was yeah. the best time of my life. Yeah, I feel like if you're yeah. a Jewish kid, you got to go to summer camp. You do, you do, and I I loved it too. The first year I was miserably homesick, and then after that I just loved it. Yeah, and um, and it was good to get to get away did you play music at camp no i mean there was like sing-along stuff right but um and we would sing like bob dylan and and stuff um but i didn't really i started i was playing guitar but it was more just like general activities it wasn't music Mm -hmm. focused it was like um just hanging with friends really and doing archery or something right you know or yeah, like yeah, yeah. things that you would never necessarily do or your parents wouldn't know anything about <laughs> but uh like my parents like <laughs> i mean when like the idea of like skiing to my parents because it was funny there was a bit of a culture clash i mean madison is a college town but it's like a real liberal place it is it is but it's also had especially back then like a wisconsin cultural thing and my parents were like not outdoorsy they're very urban people you know um so like my dad i think once bought us skis like these plastic skis from kmart and we skied down our driveway you know which was like (laughs) is um but yeah it was it was it was a good place the music scene was really great in the 80s a lot of great stuff particularly in the like well we were really into punk rock that was our thing um like this is like nineteen eighty four. Like Black flag. Black flag. Minutemen. All the SST stuff. Yeah. And then also a lot of the local bands, touch and go. Like we were really obsessed with Dekreutzen. Yeah. I used to see them every time. In fact, I bought a Kramer because the guitarist had a Kramer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, those bands and Madison. There was a band called the Tar Babies that uh-huh. was like on SST. I've and, been checking in. I, I I've been really trying to get a hold of my anger. Okay. Lately, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Sort of on it's a challenging. National, yeah. global level. Yeah. And I've been going back to all the hardcore bands that I used to love. That's amazing the thing stuff. that's sort yeah, of like yeah. settling me the most right now. I think that stuff is amazing music. And yeah. um and I still I will still listen to it frequently. And yeah, I, I agree with you, like finding like some weird solace in it. Yes. Yeah. It's it just captures it. And it was so raw and so pure, and there was such a great th- spirit around the scene you know mm-hmm. at that time i feel like all those bands that you're talking about like black flag i mean did you see minor threat yes and um who else was big well for us it was a lot the mini min, minneapolis Min-min. bands oh. the replacements who's could do mm-hmm. some of the chicago bands but it was like there was a real strong sense of regionalism like we kind mm-hmm. of had weird resentments against like East Coast bands or something. Sure, I sure, mean, sure, like sure. you know, but we really loved the California shit from like, from, like Long SST Beach stuff. and Huntington. Yeah, Beach, well, yeah. especially like yeah, Flag and um and the the Minutemen and Circle that. Jerks. The, less so. I didn't know them as well, but yeah, it was funny because you got it got really specific, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, and that was, I think, the thing that kind of turned me off. I remember like when I was first kind of getting into hardcore like age 13 14 like very quickly i was like wait white laces mean that red suspenders mean-. i was like I, you know <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah 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 i just want to listen to bad brains oh yeah they were the gods for us and i did see them 
for us, they were probably um, well. Weirdly, Decroitson was up there for me. I think because I saw them so many times. Yeah. But them and the replacements in the early days, although they could be terrible live mm-hmm. if they were drunk, but their records and then sometimes they were brilliant. But um, the Bad Brains live. Oh my god, there's nothing like it. Oh, it was incredible. It, I uh, mean, HR was ridiculous. Even the reggae stuff. I mean, he would come to Madison, and I loved that stuff. And actually, one of my friends was on this short-lived label that he was on um called jamaki and um i don't know why my friend exactly was on it because his music wasn't at all reggae or anything but anyway um we saw them and then we went like we hung out with them we were just kids but like we were so intimidated and in awe and there was a kind of a strong racial vibe at first and hr wasn't in the room and then he came in and he immediately like introduced everybody to each other and like it was completely gone. Like he was like he completely killed that vibe and I remember I was really struck with like just I don't know the charisma and kind of mm-hmm. forcefulness of that cuz he was like obviously aware of it and he just like just put went, the room he together. just put everybody yeah. together and then all of a sudden it was completely dissipated and everybody started having a great time. Um my stepsister very briefly in the early career of the Bad Brains was their manager. Oh, really? Uh, wow. And w- I think what that meant was like she would like hang out and get them weed. Right, like, right, they, right, you know, they gave right. her the title of manager. <laughs> right, right. But so she kind of kept up with them over the years. And then um, we were in Atlanta. <clears throat> I was 15 and Earl mm-hmm. had moved to Atlanta and my stepsister arranged a lunch. Like I, Me and my brother and my stepsister went out to lunch with Earl from Bad Brains. Oh, my God. And I was like, I was like holy yeah. fuck, shit, I can't believe it. So I was like, what are you doing in Atlanta? Why did you move yeah. to Atlanta? It's like, I moved here for the music. And I was wow. like, fuck yeah, like, what's going on? Right. And he was trying to get into production for groups like TLC. Okay. And like, um, Escape was really big at the time. But he was like, not interested in hardcore at all. And I remember leaving that lunch feeling like, kind of heartbroken. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can, I can appreciate that. And I think HR had already moved on from it. Because when I was talking about that meeting, that was like, 80 nine or something he's not very good at hiding his disinterest no 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 and he was already like i can't remember what year i saw them i think it was like eye against eye period that's the best which was killer i mean also rock for life period but i didn't see them that was too too much before my time right but eye against eye like that is such a centered focused brutal piece of music yeah and it was like nobody i mean for us it was new kind of the metal thing i mean we were starting to get interested in metallica but the way that they put it together and I don't know. Yeah, we were just floored by that album. For, and, for all of the aggressive music, like guitar and drum-based angry music that I've taken in over the course of my life, with you know all these different, you know, doom and and fucking speed metal and yeah. hardcore and all that stuff. I would I would say my favorite uh, meeting point where the stuff is just the best is where you have bands like Slayer and Sepultura, where it's like equal parts thrash equal parts hardcore equal parts metal and yeah, bad yeah, yeah. brains kind of hits that a little bit totally too. and with that you know, those incredible grooves that are yeah. like so deep well, and HR was yeah. so virtuosic too he was he was and with something to say too i mean that was the other thing for me like the lyrics were you know in general amazing you know yeah. i used to you know it's like a rock for light like i didn't know like you you know, a lot of times you weren't sure what he was saying, and then you'd find out, and you're like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, I was like, you know. But did you did you always enjoy writing words? Uh, I was never very good at writing lyrics. I began. I fell into a weird gig, basically 
my um my former girlfriend is a woman named Fiona Templeton who's a language poet and she was the one that turned me on to Paul Ceylon and I went up to visit her in McDowell uh-huh. artist colony yeah, yeah, yeah. and I met a writer from the New Yorker there who had um I had admired a book he'd written about the civil war in Mozambique it was weird that I had read it a friend of mine had gone to Mozambique mm-hmm. and he said this book is like the most amazing book and I read it and I just told him that and he was like oh that's really weird no, no one's read that book it came out on a small university press and so we chatted for a few minutes and I was desperate to get out of like kind of menial labor jobs. I was doing the bookstore thing. and You were just, already living in New York. Yes, definitely living in New York and was doing my band. Barbez? Barbez started around 97. Shit. Yeah. Okay. But we were like really, we were actually kind of an offshoot of a band that I know uh, Zorn knows, um, Mother Headbug. Whoa, I'm do, not... do you ever know Mother Headbug? Well, Mother Headbug was like one of the first bands with like 15 people in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and they were a great band. It came out of Cop Shoot Cop. Okay. Um, it was led by Dave Ume, who I think lives like right over here. And Dave's wife is a great singer named Michelle Ume. And Michelle had a new band called Sulphur. And I had become friends with Norman Westberg of the oh, Swans. Swans yeah. yeah, through my job at the Strand. One of the guys that I was a cashier with, it was a very, and maybe it's like this still. I hope it is, but it was a very open time. And um, so Norman and I were like friendly, and he was quitting Sulphur, and I, um, he recommended me. Mm. So I played with them for a few months. It wasn't really the right fit, but out of that experience, I decided to form my own band. So that's a corollary thing. So I was doing the band, but we were just like beginning writing music and trying to find people. I had my accordionist, Carl McGuire, who's kind of an avant. Carl, culture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know Carl. Carl's great. Yeah. And, but he wasn't really interested that much in rock music, but he was to a certain degree, and he, we were friends, so we put this band together. You, even though, you specifically wanted accordion in the band? I just wanted to play with him. Okay. And we kind of wanted accordion, and there was no other way. Like, we, we didn't really conceive of, like, doing a Rhodes or something. Yeah, we kind of wanted accordion. But that you, was a time of, like, those... We were interested. I was interested in Eastern European stuff. That so you were going to, to the knit? Yeah, definitely. On Houston. On Houston. Yeah. And then later in the yeah, in the early, when I first moved here, yeah, and I would Houston see Zorn and like I do duos and like that was amazing. Right. That was it. That was that show really stayed in my mind like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that was amazing. The intimacy there at that old space was really something. But um I would see Elliot and yeah, yeah. and those guys and um but I was still very green. I didn't really know what I was doing in New York. And I had just gotten out of classical. I was in my room for like five years just studying, just playing classical guitar. I'd gotten out of like contemporary music. Yeah. And then, um, but Carl was my pal. And then this experience with Sulphur, I realized how enjoyable it was to play in a band. So I was like, well, I want to do something. So I called him. We started getting together. Our first ad, I just discovered it in the voice. It was like, Influences Shostakovich, uh, De Kreutzen, Edith Piaf, or something. <laughs> and then it had my my home phone number, and like you'd go to these weird people's houses, get their tape yeah, of yeah. like you know their vocal. You know, we were looking for a singer. That was a lot of. Um, and then we wound up working with Michelle from Sulphur for a while, 
and it just kind of evolves from there with like a rotating cast. Danny came on pretty early, and he's been with me the longest. He came now. on pitch percussion, as always. Yeah, as always, mar- marimba. Yeah, yeah, which was like really difficult. Although he would. In the beginning, he would always have marimba and vibes, actually, which was like... On every gig. <laughs> yeah, well, we were pretty much... Yeah, it was a schlep. But then, um, and it's tough to get, particularly the marimba, loud enough, but... Um, Where were you playing? Like alt uh, Like r- the Luna Lounge yeah. and these places. And then we started doing a regular thing at the knit, at the old office. Mm-hmm. We did play like once a month. That was the small room. Yeah, downstairs, the Down, small yeah, room, okay, downstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were like, it wasn't this, it might have been the smallest room. I can't remember. There was a, no, it wasn't the small, it wasn't the alternate, but it was like, it was kind of like their loungy type Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember, okay, and, I remember that. Um, but, but then pretty soon we started playing at, uh, and I started playing with Rebecca Moore too around uh-huh. this time. And uh, I started playing at, Tonic. I forget when Tonic opened. They opened in 98. Yeah, so Barbez was around for maybe a year before it opened. And pretty soon... I was also friends with Esther uh-huh. Ballant. Um, and we just kind of... Wor- I was just hanging out at Tonic a lot, and we just sort of started gigging there. Mich- uh, Melissa was really nice, and we were doing, like, the midnight slot. And then we uh-huh. had, like... It was actually our best... It was the only time I would say we really had a following in yeah. New York because it was just the best club in the world. And I and I don't think anything has rivaled it, at least for for what I do. Like, I love the stone. It's not exactly right for, for us. And right. So, um, but Tonic was sort of this perfect middle I mean, I ground. feel like there was, at that time that you're talking about, and even just like the names you mentioned, there was this really sort of compelling... Um, influence from Eastern Europe, what's happening on a lot definitely, of stuff. Definitely. And if you're playing a tonic at, the, the, at that time, 98, you could walk out the door and go eat a Ratner's. Oh, totally. You could yeah. go, you know, Cosars yeah, yeah. and get a Bialy and really yeah. kind of feel like the, the. Oh, yeah. And I was living down here. Well, maybe not right. then, but yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean, at that time, yeah. the Lower East Side yeah. was still the Lower East Side. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. the Lower East Side anymore. No, no. And that's sad. And there was still, and that was the thing about Tonic that was cool. It was like real culture, cultural institution being brought in. It was really low key. It was fun. It was homemade. It was real people. It wasn't some corporate backed deal. And um, it was just amazing, the community, yeah. you know, and it, I didn't realize like what a loss I cut, we kind of a lot of us knew it was going to be a big loss, and like I remember what? Rebo got arrested, right, for occupying and, the space, and Rebecca too, actually. Yeah. Um, and we went to meetings. We tried to we did some fundraising thing, like all all you know all the bands right. and stuff. We would do, but it was and and then we, I think we did raise quite a bit of, of money, like a hundred grand or something. But it, that lasted them for a couple of years, and it just the economics became impossible, mm-hmm. and it was really sad. But I never. It was such an open time, and I don't know if I'm just nostalgic. No, you're not. You yeah, know, you was could like, go hang out at the Pink Pony. Right, I love and there was regular or... people still living in the neighborhood. You know, yeah. like Sim and Dougie had their studio up the block. Right, and, on know, Orchard Street. I think it was on Ludlow. Ludlow? Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I, I feel like I'm getting really nostalgic right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, but yeah, sorry like, to bring you back. No, 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 but <laughs> I, I, do you know that guy, Shimon, that uh, had that practice space on Orchard Street? On Rivington? Rivington or Orchard? Because Rebecca was practicing on Rivington. There okay. was a... There was that. Warren Blodow had a at a place or something. 
that was right Everyone had a place. Yeah, or like there was a room but shared by like 10 bands. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like, but there was this cat, Shimon. I think, I don't know if he's still around, but he had these like really funky basement practice spaces mm-hmm. that he would rent out for like 10 bucks an hour. Yeah, I, I think I think we definitely did practice and, there. And there was get, a lot of those little practice so spaces. so many of those. Yeah. You could walk through the neighborhood and you would just hear strange yeah. music coming up from the ground for these practice spaces. Yeah, it was good. It was real good. And there were some people that had permanent spaces with like six or seven bands and you could always go couple of hours in um i remember rebecca was playing at one and she was actually working at the matzo factory strites yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> she and she was living on rivington street she was I like used to live in rivington and yeah. that was the thing when i'd be coming home at night i would stop at strites and get a hot piece of matzo for 25 yeah. cents <laughs> it was like 1912 yeah, so i feel like i'm describing yeah. a really long time ago. yeah but yeah. I, has i feel like there's like a really strong literary component to barbez and has that Definitely. been that was there at the beginning? Um, no, I think it's well. It's maybe got more pronounced when John's approached me to do an album for the Zorn. Zorn, yeah. Because yeah. um, like we were, I was really you know always a huge admirer of him, and I wanted to do something special. And I suppose like it was there that the thought to do something with like a higher level of concept ca- came to me, like. And I'd always had this deep love for Ceylon and had thought about doing a record um, related to it. And I hadn't thought of how to do it. But then when I, um, John saw us, we started doing music for a really great experimental playwright named John Jezerin. Okay. I don't know if you know him. Mm. But he was kind of part of the, um, well, Steve Buscemi was in his early plays. He had this avant-garde soap opera called Chang in Avoid Moon. (laughs) That used to do every week, they would do a show at the Pyramid Club, kind of part of the kind of the gay rock scene. And Steve was in it, John Kelly, a lot of the downtown performance crew. And I knew a lot of that scene because Fiona was part of that. Mm. And um, anyway, so we were doing that and we did music for one of his shows and John was there and he knew Pamela really well. So mm-hmm. I and we uh, and then he asked me to do he he. I was surprised he he knew about us because I guess we were do, doing Tonic a lot. And so he asked me if I wanted to do a record for Tonic. And I said, oh, my God, yeah, I'd love to. And that's so I thought I just wrote him like a few days later. I said, well, I've always wanted to do something about Paul Ceylon. And then it worked like it's not a boast. I, I felt like it worked really well. So then out of that, I was like, because I do have other interests mm-hmm. um, besides music, probably more than most musicians. In fact, most of my time is spent like now, and I and I really am getting bummed by this. I'm working on this book and about about the, Wisconsin and the destruction of our country. But but specifically stuff. that Wisconsin was Wisconsin, once a really progressive state. Exactly, exactly, and it kind of presaged Trump's victory both there and nationally. I mean, the fact that he won Wisconsin exactly. Well, it was says a lot up, about yeah. quite a few things. It does, it does, and and the book is called Divide and Conquer, and it kind of reflects this sort of hard far-right politics that destroyed the labor movement and a lot of other things that uh, went in and kind of transformed Wisconsin. But you started writing this book before the 2016 election. Uh, I was pitching it before. I started writing about the destruction of the state. I read that Times piece you wrote. Yeah, yeah. And that was, and then we sent out um, a proposal about the book and nobody bit. And then I was actually on tour in Spain with a, a new project with just my drummer, and uh, 
And I got this email from a book editor, like, Dan, I want to talk to you right away. Uh (laughs) It was the night after the election. And and because, and Wisconsin had actually literally put him over the top of 270. So I, um, so then I came back to New York and, and I was, and then we met and he was like, I really want to do this book. And, and I was able to quit my day job and now I've just been working on it. Like, so you're not at the times anymore? No, no. I mean, I should be at the Times, but I couldn't do the book. It was too demanding. Like, uh, it's pretty full on. I mean, and so I can, you know, get my job back, hopefully, if I want to. Right. Um, but I had to quit because, um, and it was, it, they, they, they offered me. I mean, this specific um, insider insight mm-hmm. uh, that you have about Wisconsin, and I feel like you've spent a lot of time analyzing the what's the opposite word of progress uh the, the, traject- the <laughs> yeah, trajectory yeah, yeah. Of, of what's happened there uh like certainly makes you one of the right people to be well approaching i the think they thought that and they had noticed like i had made i had interviewed a union guy I, I started focusing on labor a lot but also like stuff like native american rights and um you know i think to those of us that grew up there it was really offensive because these outside groups the cokes all these people were destroying the state. It wasn't even people of the state. It right. was these, the state had become a vessel, and it had a really special, unique history. You know, the guy that wrote the Social Security Act was a Wisconsinite. They had something very unique called the Wisconsin Idea that basically said, we're going to make progressive legislation using the expertise of the university's faculty. And they came up with, like, the guy that wrote Medicare was a, was a Wisconsinite under the sway so kind of whatever social democracy the United States has, a lot of it came from this one upper Midwestern state. And there was a decent um, – so we felt – you know, some of us felt a lot of pride in that tradition that was sort of indigenous to the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it got taken over by these, like, far-right groups. But um, also, I mean – and we'll go back to the music, yeah. but, like, how much – the fact that Hillary Clinton didn't even campaign in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Big deal. To you, how much – resentment or frustration do you feel towards the democratic establishment huge and i never liked i was always further probably i was further to the left than them and uh and and i liked sanders you know i i saw him as a revival of kind of a jewish tinged social yeah democracy um and 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 it really resonated in wisconsin um so that was uh and i think what happened is that I mean, she lost more than Trump won. I mean, I really think, I do think Bernie would have won those mm-hmm. upper Midwestern states. And people didn't get, because I was hanging around a lot of union guys um, in Milwaukee and Racine and Kenosha, and the, the anger over the trade deals. And it's just, it's really salient. They've gone from making 25 bucks an hour to 12 It's not easy to live, you know, and the humiliation, and it gets... Not every Trump voter is some racist pig. And there was a real uh, condescension, I think, um, to some of these people. Difficult to say maybe now, given what's happened in Charlottesville. But I do believe that. And I think, like, the labor movement was one of the brightest lights. And it was a thing that I think they most feared. And Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King said it, too. I mean, in researching my book, there's all these speeches, you know. And he said, you know, the, the labor movement is completely aligned with the civil rights movement and in fact 
he said, you know, basically Jim Crow was invented to divide poor whites from blacks, you know, mm-hmm. in an effort to prevent them from uniting against the real people. You know, Bob Dylan wrote, I always tell people, like, Bob Dylan <laughs> said it, you know, he was probably the best political prognosticator. It was like only a pawn in their game. You know, that's yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's right there. You know, you're getting people, you're ginning up this resentment, but like, who's really, who's really running the show? Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, very, yeah. very simple reductive logic. You know, points yeah. you in the direction of well, who's benefiting from all this? Exactly. And exactly. You kind of start, your and that's the title of my there. book, Divide and Conquer. Right. You know, and I mean, Walker said that privately, and then, um, you know, he uh, he acted on it. And Trump took it way further. Walker has nice manners, right? But the seeds were there. You know, right. I mean, and. And I mean, it's been going on a long time. Uh, George Wallace, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, they've all tried to split off a portion of the white working class in an effort to win yeah. and to divide people and to make them think that they're better than this other group. And they, they have some privileges. I, I, I'm not a big fan of that whole kind of reductive privilege mm-hmm. stuff that's floating mm-hmm. around. But, you know, obviously, you know, they're not going to get stopped and frisked. But if you tell somebody that's working at a Walmart for 12 bucks an hour to check that they've privilege. got it made, right. you know, if you're some working for some East Coast magazine, they're going to resent it. <laughs> right. Um, it's class. Yeah, it's, it's class. class war. And, and I've always felt that way. And I, I mean, think, what, you know, I think like the idea of check your privilege yeah. is a nice starting point for self-examination. I think um, it is, and yeah. And to understand your own historical, cultural context, yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as that of others. Sure. But you're absolutely right. I just spent the winter living in upstate New York for like three yeah. or four months. Yeah. Which meant trips to Walmart. It meant, exactly. you know, yeah, yeah. like filling up at the gas station. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's an easy victim, a Mexican immigrant that's making eight bucks an hour. Right. Is, you know, and, but it's like, they're not, your enemy, you know, and I know, and it's, and it's easy to say, and it, but it's like, and that's the thing that was nice about Sanders. At least he was speaking to that and she just abdicated that yeah. space. And you have to like people, I don't think they're lemmings, but if you're ginning this stuff up, you know, I mean, that's what Walker did and, and Trump, they unleash this stuff. I think it's always there, but like they were inciting. Yeah. I mean, especially Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's, so it's like, I mean, what happened in Charlottesville? Yeah, I do hold him responsible. Leader, yeah. you're supposed to like lead. Yeah, and be a calming <laughs> <laughs> presence. And what and what Bernie was saying was really important. Like, no, no, no. These people are not. It's these guys that are, you know, that really own everything. And he would not. I felt talked down to them no. and had a genuine compassion. And whatever she was saying with deplorables, I mean, it might have been taken out of context to a degree, but like to no, say that is just like if I mean that's this is one of the more frustrating things about the situation that we're in is that the this concept of leadership has just completely been forgotten. And, and yeah. I, I mean, a leader is supposed to bring people together they're supposed to guide things towards progress and success and a leader and i I miss this quite a lot about our former president looks to expand their own views while also influencing the larger group for the good absolutely i think people like us would objectively say that 
progress, you know, progressive issues, civil rights, uh, equal pay. Like these are good things objectively. Mm-hmm. These aren't partisan issues. Yeah, yeah. Basic human yeah, decency yeah. is not yeah, a partisan yeah. issue. Yeah. And the fact that that Hillary Clinton would say that about fifty percent of the country is a real testament to the nature of what that that election was. And you know, I'm sorry, but it's a popularity contest. You don't run the candidate who for 30 years people have been building this gigantic resentment and hatred towards. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. the smartest thing to do. No, and I, I agree. And then she didn't, she didn't have much credibility. And people smell bullshit, you know. And I, and I think, um, you know, she tried to, like, I think they downplayed things like the TPP and stuff. And particularly in this corridor, like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, where people really are hurt. And and there was like a significant impact on their livelihoods from these shitty deals, and they they know that they're not as naive or as unaware as you think. And then she says like, you know, she's praising this a million times. Then she says she's against it, and they know they're just you know what happened in Wisconsin? It's just people didn't turn out. I mean, he got roughly the same votes that Romney did. She just got much less. Yeah. You know, because nobody was motivated. They were like, they stayed home. There's other problems, voter ID and stuff, all contributed. But, like, she didn't go. She didn't say anything. She didn't give them what was in it for them. Not to excuse it, because I think, obviously, we're in a worse situation. But I, I do feel like it was like she abdicated. And I, and I think, like, they lost the election more than, in some ways, Trump Trump won. You know? I think I think that's a pretty unanimous agreement, yeah, at least yeah. on our half. Of yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the but, political spectrum. But as far as music, going back to the yeah, Lower yeah, East Side, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. making records about Paul Celan. <laughs> well, yeah, and like I wanted to do something more because I had these other interests, and and John was really excited because he's also a huge Ceylon. I mean, it's like we're a cult. Any yeah. Ceylon fan, it's like he was like said something to me that I agreed with he was like the greatest poet of the 20th century and i was like yeah Yeah. you know and i do believe that um and so he just he was great and it kind of pushed us a bit and then i started then everything became a concept and i think now maybe probably the next record after this we just finished this record of spanish civil war songs and i did kind of i've always been really politics has always been a big part of my life so i wanted to kind of twin the two but it's always dangerous you know yeah. i mean and like you want to do it in a good way and it's not like some agitprop or something um so anyway that's always a struggle but and then we did this record on the roman jewish stuff which was a little bit also had a concept which was roman jewish melodies but it was twinned to this sort of uh resistance theme and i don't know i mean it was a little bit like i think and it would just be nice to just do a record that's just about the songs. And in fact, that's this project with my drummer. Is there's no? It's just music. There's no. Given other... everything that's going on right now, do you feel like you could just make? A... <laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> well, I feel like I've done. You know how like you feel like after you've done something really intensely for a while, you kind of like okay, I'm gonna do so. You just have to like turn your attention yeah, for a yeah, minute. Yeah. And um, and I'm... this this record with the Spanish Civil War songs, it's coming out October. Fourth, um, and that I'm really proud about uh, because these songs are very special. Pete Seeger originally recorded them in like 1944. He learned them from these uh, volunteers that had fought in the Spanish Civil War, Americans that came back. 
And these guys, I got to know a lot of them through journalism, or half dozen of them. Mm -hmm. So they were really important. There's like a personal connection. Yeah. And the idea, like this is what I felt was missing, I suppose, a little bit from the politics of now was the concept of solidarity, uh, which is like not thinking. People are really um, kind of in their own kind of narrower world around certain issues and um the idea that you could like not ha experience something directly but also feel a profound empathy enough to say go to spain and fight on someone else's behalf is really moving mm -hmm. um and so i think that and that was kind of a key thread in the book that i'm doing too most of my characters are these kind of wait this book is the forthcoming book. Yeah, yeah. It's not a work of fiction, is it? No, no, it's not fiction. Okay. Yeah, but there's some little bit of... Right. No, it's, it's not fiction. Right, right. But they're characters. I mean, I try to do... It's sort of like creative nonfiction, I suppose you call it. Mm -hmm. But um, they're protagonists that are kind of fighting... I don't want to say doomed fights, but they're fighting with really the odds stacked very heavily against them. Right. And so that's sort of the theme. And I admire people that just keep going no matter whether they win or lose. And I think a lot of the guys that went to Spain, they kind of knew a little bit it was doomed, but they couldn't just do nothing. Right. And so I suppose like the motivation for doing these songs, and it's funny because there's a lot of people. It's like another of these cults, like Revo, big obsession about the Spanish Civil mm -hmm. War. And like it's, it's like a touchstone for people, like a moment in history when that was very, uh, that spirit was kind of illuminated in a very clear way. And you hope that these songs, like Pablo Neruda has this nice line about how like they're little, you know, sometimes you need these fireflies as like sort of sparks mm -hmm. in dark times. And I, I feel that way about music and like also the revival of, I, I think one of the biggest things about doing the Salon record was just the, my excitement about his work and introducing, because he's still, to my mind, not known enough. Right here and um just introducing people to his work and because it, it's very special and it's very powerful and um and the same thing with these these spanish songs and stuff because they they carry a message and they're really great songs yeah you yeah, know yeah, yeah um and like the seeger versions are amazing i mean you get chills were um, you a hemingway fan growing up i did like that i did like hemingway and yeah. i do like that book I was actually, because it was Madison, Wisconsin, uh, there was uh, one of the Lincoln Brigade volunteers lived in town, and uh, and he came to my high school. Yeah. So I, that's how I first was introduced to it. I've been thinking a lot about war. Mm. Not, I mean, I've been having yeah, yeah. nightmares about what <laughs> yeah, might be coming. Yeah. North Korea. But, uh, <laughs> I got kind of, uh, I, uh, Zorn actually recommended to me this, uh, did you see this miniseries that came out on HBO a few years ago called The Pacific? Mm-mm. It's like a six or eight part series. He he swore by it. He's like, it's the greatest war thing I've ever seen, wow. and I've seen them all. Wow! You know, wow. and it's uh, it's about the you know the Pacific Pacific Theater of Operations during yeah. World War II. You know, the 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 battles against the Japanese in places like you know Guadalcanal and Okinawa. Right, right, right. It's just completely like alternative perspective to World War II that I. You know, you grew up with, you know, my, my dad's parents, you know, were in the camps in mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Mom's dad was, you know, stationed over in the South Pacific and he was mm -hmm. shooting Japanese planes out of the sky. Wow. You wow. know, um, wow. 
but it's just kind of like so I, I, I binge watch this whole thing right. and then I've gone back and I've been watching all these movies like Paths of Glory oh yeah I love that film oh my god that's an incredible film but this this idea yeah. of war and and as you said about the uh, of of for I think for many many generations you know politics aside you know imperialism aside mm-hmm. for the the men that went to war there was this concept of this gives my life meaning mm-hmm. yeah doing yeah. the right thing and and putting my life on the line for it is mm-hmm. where we find meaning yeah no and I think there was especially for World War Two which was the big one and it was like you know a just just cause but um, so yeah I think with that but like a lot of the guys in Vietnam they there was a dissonance because then it was like, what are you doing there? You know, they couldn't, mm-hmm. it was a hard time reconciling with the motive, you know, the cause, you sure. know, and even though it was probably the most intense thing, uh, I wrote a piece about a guy, uh, of that, that was doing this humanitarian project in Milai. I worked a lot with Seymour Hirsch, the guy that broke the Milai story. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was a big, he's big influence on me. um, but uh, but I wrote a piece. There were three guys that stopped that massacre. Not as well known, but they were in a helicopter and they actually threatened. I think it might be the only time in history where they threatened to fire on their on American troops if huh. they didn't desist from massacring these civilians. And it was a really powerful story. I wasn't the one that discovered it. I just wrote, I followed up because this they were doing these humanitarian projects in Mulai on the 45th anniversary. And I talked to one of those guys and he was still haunted. There was one woman that he couldn't they were flying over and they saw this woman they were saving people as many as they could, mm-hmm. pulling them out of ditches like covered in blood and um one woman he saw lying on a ditch and he said well he told the other the co-pilot like we'll circle back for and 10 minutes later they did and she was gone she had been killed and he said every night i'm just haunted you know even though he had say he had done the right thing he'd done the right thing but they didn't save her and um that just stayed with him in this way so anyway yeah i think it has it can have that meaning and yet when i don't think when when it's unjust it has this incredible dissonance for the vets you know well, certainly that, i mean the i think the numbers are down for for new enlistees yeah yeah yeah, and have been yeah. For quite a while it has yeah. you know the given yeah. as hunter thompson said history is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit right but right. certainly i mean I, I you know when i talk to people like my mom's age she's uh 70 Mm-hmm. You know, and she was very, she was of the age of people getting drafted and going to Vietnam when they had access to information that they said, oh, this is wrong. Yeah. And yeah. they're sending, especially towards the end of the war, when they were just sending people there to be killed to prolong the war effort. I mean, they so were, that Nixon could save his reputation. I mean, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to and not Johnson, become completely yeah. cynical yeah, and yeah. completely sort of yeah. I mean, disenchanted is an understatement. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's there anymore. It, mm-hmm. just, just like I don't think coal jobs are there anymore. I don't right, think right, right, you know, right, like right, like uh, right, right. you talk to people from the Pacific Northwest, you know, who come generation after generation of loggers. Like that's not a thing anymore. Right, right, and, right, 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 right. You know, or you talk to 
improvising musicians yeah, yeah, who can't sell records. <laughs> Which is yeah, like selling a record. <laughs> yeah, that hasn't been a thing for quite some time, but we were still under our beautiful illusions for a long time. <laughs> now the illusions are coming crumbling. Down. But if, someone, like, yeah. if, if some crazy fascist politician was like, I'm going to make a, a CD sellable again, we're going to make it great again, I'd vote for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I know, and everyone's always like vinyl. This, you know. I mean, I don't know. So you kind of go between the world of music and 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 writing, or are yes. they? Is it one world? Uh, it's one world. I, I I thought about that a lot. Recently, it's been more like, you know, more heavily on the writing. Although mm-hmm. I really miss just playing. Um, but uh, that's because I'm on a big deadline. Yeah. But I think of it as unified to a degree um and and i think you know the music is definitely informed by these other interests i think that's one thing like i kind of dropped out of like music school at a certain point and stopped being like completely focused on formal or technical achievement and i had a long way to go and i i think it was more just about you know what i wanted to say Mm -hmm. with um the band and and doing it in our way and um using what i had the tools i had um but like also thinking a little bit about content not always in a literal way but sometimes and then like what were we trying to get across you know um whether it was a piece of instrumental music or right. not. But, um, and I think probably everybody's thinking about that in their own way. But for me, it was like kind of related to these, my love of history and literature and uh, other things. And I think everyone does that. Like Anthony Coleman, for example, we were talking about one of the smartest people I've ever talked to about any subject. About any subject. <laughs> um, so, I mean, everybody, I'm maybe more overt about my interests. I think that's there for all those guys. Elliot. Mm-hmm. All of them, John mm-hmm. Thorn. Um, that was really strong. Like, um, so I don't know. I think yeah, we're a little bit more on the surface with it. I guess yeah. Like at a certain point, like I didn't want to like hide it. There was like you know, I felt like I was inspired by some political music. The Clash meant a lot to me when I was growing up, and other things. And I just yeah, we just put it out there. Ceylon is different because he's so elliptical, mm-hmm. and um, but there is a really strong. In fact, there's a reference to the Spanish Civil War in one of these, uh, in one of the pieces on on the Barbez record. Um, that's kind of hard to to uh, to glean. That's one of the genius things about him. He's not. It's so artful. Another person that's been a big influence on me recently is Philip Guston, uh-huh. the painter. Yeah, yeah, just love that man's work. Like yeah. I, I was, I'm obsessed with him. Kind of. But to me, it seems like there's, especially with the 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 subject of the book that you're working on, the nature of the subject. Yeah, yeah. You know, the beautiful thing about music and poetry is mm. that it's ephemeral and yeah. that it has many layers of meaning, and yeah. that you can spend a lifetime going to it, walking away from it whether that's as a participant or as a, a listener, how do you even keep up with, like, if you're writing a book that's ostensibly about current affairs and you have this idiot in office who literally every day surprises us yeah, yeah, uh, with yeah. new acts of incompetence, yeah. how do you even keep up with you know, putting like a, 
like a, a shallow roundabout. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, my book is kind of more a, like it's trying to be metaphysical about contemporary events. Like it's it's an examination of labor. It's a lot. What interests me the most is like the state's past, like the roots of the labor movement in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, a lot of people don't know this. It has socialist mayor until 1960. Right. Like a member of the Socialist Party it had the longest. It's a very working class place. Um, so that stuff doesn't change. Um, and I think the forces, the big picture forces that are behind all this, the details might change, but they've been actually organizing themselves since like the early 70s. There's this famous thing called the Powell Memo. Not many people have heard about it, but Lewis Powell, the future Supreme Court justice, wrote a secret memo to the Chamber of Commerce basically saying... Corporate America is getting our asses kicked. They were they were worried about people like Ralph Nader and all of these mm-hmm. impinged the government imposing itself on business. So the Koch brothers, the people, Richard Mellonscafe, all of these right wing billionaires started organizing and building these this infrastructure, Cato Institute, all of this stuff. It's not a conspiracy, it's real. Mm-hmm. Um and they were one thing that galvanized them was this memo by Powell before he was nominated to the Supreme Court that was then leaked. And it basically outlines this whole, this need to create this architecture around um, the right wing to take, they were worried that the American, it was called attack on the American free enterprise system. They were worried about the end of capitalism. Right. So, um, and they've been doing this since the early 70s and it's like a nutritional war that really came to fruition in 2010 when they won all of these states. And it was like they focused on the states because they were a lot easier to take over. And it's kind of like the way I describe it is like the Republicans were fighting a ground war and the Democrats were fighting an air war Mm -hmm. from 30,000 feet. They didn't realize that they had knocked out all the the still holding up the house, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. you know, Walker and them. And, And so, of course, it sets the stage for Trump to win. They've transformed it piece by piece. They chip away at everything. They're mm-hmm. relentless. Yeah. They have all the money in the world. They have endless resources. They would spend $10 million on a state Senate race mm-hmm. in Wisconsin just to win the seat because it's obviously worth a lot more than that. And mm-hmm. in that way, they transformed a place. And in Wisconsin, it's a good place to see it because it used to be a decent place. And now they've turned it kind of into Mississippi or something. Do you still go back there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Well, I still have my my parents passed away, but my sister's there and I have friends there, and I've been reporting a lot. Mm-hmm. So I've been there a lot. And so. what's the if you had to characterize like a big difference between the Wisconsin you grew up in and the Wisconsin now, just as a person walking around? Well, it's funny because Madison's gotten kind of fancier. There's nice mm-hmm. nice restaurants and stuff. It's funny, and like I think that's also maybe fueling some of the resentment of the rest of the state. But it's the one place that's doing kind of well. Um, a lot of the jobs are, are gone. Um, it still has great people, and people, they're tough there, man. I mean, they're relentless, too. It's just that they're a bit overmatched. But I, like, the book follows a bunch of protagonists, basically citizens, that are trying, normal people, mm-hmm. that are trying to win back their state. So Yeah. That's, that's the conceit, sort of. Right. And what's the next uh, step? I mean, what you're working on a new record for Barbez? Well, we just finished it, and then yeah, I'm working a lot with John. We have this project, John and Dan. That's the name. John, John Bollinger, drummer. Yeah, he's in the Sway Machinery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And he's drummer of Barbez, and me and him. 
did some touring in Europe, uh, and we've got like half of a new record we recorded at Martin. We we're really close to Martin BC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Martin's done all of the Barbet stuff. So we've done like half of that. And as soon as this book is done, I'm t- I tell my wife every day, like, I can't wait to get back to that project because um, it's really nice. And then Barbez will work on some new stuff. All of us have small kids, so it's tough. Yeah. Um, everybody's busy. Peter Hess, great player, mm-hmm. very busy. Um, Pamela is in Vienna, but we're going to do something in Portugal. We're doing uh, Spanish Civil War stuff at this big festival next summer. Cool. In Portugal, uh, Jazz Magosto? No, it's called Sinesh, the Festival Musicas del Mundo. Okay, it's a big. It's at uh, Vasco da Gama's castle. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's an amazing. Um, yeah, soundcheck is like being in a Led Zeppelin album or something. <laughs> it's just like it's in a castle. Um, but uh, we have a real affinity for Portugal, and so and we go there a lot. Yeah. yeah so, but uh, we're all kind of scattered, but everybody's. We're all excited to see each other when we're in the same room together. Yeah. It's just um, the difficulties of, uh, you know, life in New York, survival in New York. You know, those, it, yeah, yeah. those topics. In the world. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but so. it's something kind of nice and comforting, I'd imagine, about, like, you know this band will always just exist. It's a family band. Yeah. I mean, literally and figuratively. Right. Yeah, so. Like, not all bands. Like, you know, you kind of grow up. I grew up, this, it's like bands either exist or they break up. It's like, that's actually not the way it works. No. And, and now it's funny because at a certain point, like, you realize that nobody ever truly broke up. <laughs> well, I mean, like Metallica, you get yeah. like something on yeah. that level where it's yeah, like yeah. a business partnership and yeah. so-and-so owns like X amount of the business, then like it's right. talking well, about something different. Well, even like the Stooges, it was like, all right, so it's was a 30-year hiatus or something. Let's play again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, we like to see each other, and I wish I could... We could do more. It's kind of the economics are so fucking it's hard. tough. Man. If you want to do things right, it's really hard. Exactly. You want to pay people. You want to like. We want to record at Martin's. You know, which is like not. It's, it's like, not that. No, it's reasonably priced. Oh, it's totally reasonable. He does, and and he does an amazing job. It's like, and he needs to live. We need to yeah. eat. He needs to eat. The mastering guy needs to eat. I mean, it's like what the idea that everyone is supposed to work for free. I mean, I'm with Rebo on all that stuff. Like somebody's making money. And it's nobody that's part of that process of people that deserve to get paid, right. you know. So it's it's frustrating, and and I don't know if there's a solution, but you know, I'm always, yeah. I'm. It would be nice if there was some way that people could develop a different model. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not impossible, but it hasn't emerged yet. But right. like, the whole idea, like you know, you don't even think about it, but you play your video on YouTube. Well, they're running an ad or something. Right. Some, Google is making something. Somebody, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's like, why shouldn't the artist get a piece of that every time? The artist never has. Never. Well, right. It, it's yeah. almost like the artist's role is to be the victim in this equation. Yeah, that's true. And Although I, I Mar- say, I say yeah. that without yeah, like, yeah. self-pity or empathy yeah, or yeah. self-sympathy, whatever. Like, it's There's something historical about that that almost like... It seems essential. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I, I know. It's true. But it's funny because, like, it's kind of what I think. You know, it's funny because people be like, labor unions. And there's a lot bad with them. And there has been. But the thing that people forget is, like, it was, even though they were bad, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. It was still better than when there was some money in the music industry. Yeah. Like, there was still something. Like, Mark talks about this, his story of his Haitian guitar teacher, and he was able to get him like 16 grand 
by pursuing the publishing rights, but at least there was some, and it it was a hassle and all that. Sure. But there was some recourse and there was something and there was some structure for him to get something for his music. And I feel the same way. Like labor unions, there was a problem, but everyone's like, oh no, labor unions or whatever. They're just bad. But no, no, no. There were problems, but it's actually much worse now. Not yeah. now it's like there's no recourse. Teachers unions, whatever. There's problems, but it's much worse now, both for the workers and for the kids. Yeah. You know, and same thing with the music industry. Like I liked I didn't even mind when like some musician or something would make a lot of bread because at least it was like a musician. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was yeah, some yeah, yeah, yeah. something out it meant there was success, but at least Something trickled down. Like John and Laswell would would get like money to do put out bands on like these majors, even yeah. though or like Swans was once on a major for right. like one record. That helped them throughout their indie career, you know, to build, this day. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and even if you just had one record or Mike Watt or whatever. I mean Pick your pick your guy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's helpful when there's some and it helps the indies too, like up the scale. It's like a union job. Like, you know, these people would tell me like yeah, they would call me, the non-union shops would call me and say, what was your contract? And then they would come in like a little bit less. They couldn't go, they couldn't pay people a ton less. Right. Because they set a standard, you know? Right. And same thing with um, with the music industry. If there was more money in the major labels, well, then maybe the indie can give you 10 grand or something right. for an album, you know? And it doesn't, you know, whatever. But now it's, I, I don't understand what's happening now if you figure it out I don't, man, please I, i'm doing me. everything myself and yeah you know i've somehow managed you know like my my the begin me putting stuff out me touring yeah has all every step of the way has come just behind like the floor falling out beneath it <laughs> yeah so like, you're like running <laughs> it's that cartoon <laughs> right i yeah, started yeah. going to europe just after the guarantees dried up i yeah. started putting out records just as people stopped buying them yeah so like i've been very good at sort of like i picture myself on this little island that i keep like scooping the water <laughs> off of but <laughs> i love that image it's horrible i know i know it's 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 really tough out there this last record i should put in a plug it was actually funded by a non-profit the abraham lincoln brigade archives yeah and so that was nice because they pay. I didn't have to lose money, um, <laughs> uh, but which was kind of novel. But um, and and John was always great to us too. I mean, it was like that was amazing. And and you know, I just I I don't you know I hope that somehow. And he's very resourceful. You know, I always look mm -hmm. to him as to somebody. Be. What's that? You have to be. Yeah, you have to be. He's got the stone now at the new school. Yeah. But it's like, and that's a good idea. I wish there was more. Like even though Europe. It's gotten worse. There's still a lot more state support for mm -hmm. the arts, and but you also people need to be pretty smart about how they deal with their opportunities. And, yeah. and what I mean, like for instance, you know, I, I'm doing this gig. It kind of came up last minute um, at Roulette, and oh yeah, so I'll try yeah, to be there. It'll be yeah, 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 uh, yeah. in December, mm -hmm. and you know, it's not a lot of money, yeah. but it's enough money that I can give each cat playing like you know yeah, a, yeah. a real fee, something. Yeah, but yeah. I also know that it's going to be multi-track recorded. So right, what right, I'm doing right. right now is strategizing right. the sound yeah. check. The right. rehearsal, so I can somehow get recording sources from all over yeah, the place and yeah. be able to shape that into a record. I know. Oh, we did it, and the sound is pretty good. They do a pretty good they job. They do a great yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. They do a great yeah, job. Yeah. So it's on me now yeah, yeah. to really, you know, take as much advantage of that opportunity as I possibly can. You can't totally. just show up and play. It's like I'm thinking, you know. No, you got to. You got to make the most of every chance, you know. And and this last record was live. We did it. We recorded it at the Japan Society as part of the annual reunion right. of the vets, and then we did it 
because it what we wanted Pam on there, so we did over. It's a hybrid, you know. We did it at Martin's, and he's so good at, and skillful. So it's like, you know, drums, bass, most of the guitar, vocals are live. In marimba, there was so much leakage that right. we couldn't. We had to redo that entirely. Yeah, yeah. But it was fine because we had a big chunk. We were That's super head start, it. you know. Yeah. And then we could just do it, and then we could really mix it. It sounds, yeah, because like. It sounds pretty good for live, like, and we got a real guy to engineer it, Damon Whittemore. Do you know? Him? I don't know. He's he's really good live engineer. But you know, if you, especially if you're using like, like here, you know, speaking of Zorn and the resourcefulness, I recorded some stuff for him. I don't know, like four or five years ago, he was doing, he was presenting um, these two brass quintets or maybe mm-hmm. sextets uh, at Manus College as part of this trumpet thing, and you know, he took me up there with some mics. I multi-track recorded everything, and we did it. There was a day of rehearsals, a sound check, and a performance. We recorded everything and ended up splicing this whole thing together like, as you would a normal record. But there was, you know, if he wanted to record those same two pieces of music, each is only about three minutes long. Mm-hmm. You don't have to block out a day in the studio. Totally, You'd have to totally. pay each cat, you know, a thousand yeah. bucks or whatever it is. Like, no. Yeah, I think John should te- he should teach one some course at, at, <laughs> at some university. I mean, you get a million people. He's he's the master, the most. And a lot of those cats are Elliot. I mean, yeah. all of them. I'm I'm in awe of all of them, you know, and the, also how they stand up for themselves. And I mean, Mark is somebody that I've gotten more close to recently, and you know, I admire his activism. And you know, um, all all of them in their different ways. You try to learn from people, both musically, like in a literal way, and also like how they are as people that have mm-hmm. been doing it, you know, for a long time. But John, yeah, one thing I like about Zorn is like how he never, there's like, it's not a culture of complaint. It's like, I'm just going to deal with the world as it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and keep putting my stuff out there. And however that works, like people stop buying albums, well, there's still a way to do, you know, or whatever. And it's like, and that's, I think, really um, super, super admirable. Adapt yeah. or die. Yeah, exactly. he always says, He always says that to me. Adapt yeah. or die. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. can't hold on to what what you know, even though it sucks. And but it's important also for people to learn that it doesn't have to be. You know, I don't know. Well, you, you know, yeah. you, where there, I think it's a good practice in life to look at where you have complaints and look at that same thing, and look where there's opportunities within them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this very, you know laptop that destroyed our ability to make a living right. is now giving me the opportunity to record us talking yeah, and yeah. send it out to however many people totally, totally. Um, yeah, yeah. for free yeah 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 so yeah. no and also allowed me to like get pam she would sometimes fly in her tracks from vienna we sure. didn't have to you know and it was like it sounded pretty good yeah. you know and she puts it in a dropbox and it's there yeah i know and then with martin we put it through the board and it's like oh my god well and it's a theremin too it's like a simple way so it's yeah, like yeah, yeah you know it doesn't have to uh you're not looking for a big room sound, right. you know? <laughs> but, um, so there was certain, yeah, there's certain things that we could do that we never could do before. But, uh, you know, yeah, there were certain things that were lost too. It's important to remember them. And, um, and I do, I do, I'm an advocate, not very active for musicians' rights. And I don't like people getting ripped off, especially by Google, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. And I wish there was something to coalesce around. It isn't clear yet like the path forward. But I think, you know, in researching my book, there's there's always been like dark time. It's like, you know, there's been a lot of dark times, like 
and people think like Trump is this singular event. He's not. No. You know, he's really not. He's a symptom. He's a he's mirror. He's a symptom. That's what I also, I also get annoyed when people are like, Trump, is the, it decontextualizes. He's like the head of this rotten body. To be it's clear, not, he is pure filth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I loathe the man, but he comes out of a context. Yeah. And if people miss that, you're going to, you know, miss a bigger story. And it was like, it's, it's been going this way for a long time. And that's part of what my book is around. Like the destruction of these institutions have paved the way for these far right people. Walker at one time was pushing the furthest edge. There's always going to be somebody that's going to take it further. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Trump was there and he, he looked like a front runner. And then, I mean, Trump made him look like, you know, soft. He sent him home like a school Yeah. Boy. And it was like when, you, when you're appealing to people who's with these authoritarian impulses that want to incite people, mm-hmm. you're always going to go for the most extreme guy, you know? Yeah. So anyway. All right. Well, I think we did the dance. Yeah. Day. Hey, dude. Thanks for talking. Oh my god. I hope it was okay. No, this it was good. It got. It got. Well, uh, we, did, you know, I expected it to kind of go some places. Yeah. 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 Did. Yeah. So just <laughs> just cut out what no, you don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was Dan Kaufman. What did you guys think? Was that a good one? I think so. I, I, I'm I'm into that one. This was a good one. I'm I'm probably you know most of these podcasts you know I, I edit them, I put them up, and that's it. I never really look at them again. I'm probably gonna listen back to that one again. I think I, I think there was some good stuff in there, and um, maybe we'll have Dan back on. I, I think that we have a lot more to talk about. If you're around New York City, October fourth, get your ass down to Joe's Pub for Dan's record release party. I'm gonna try and get down there. Um, the new record for those who came after. It's out October 6th. You got to check it out. It's great. Go to barbez.com. That's it. You know, we'll be back next week. Uh, Until then, I hope you guys are all hanging in. I hope you guys are all doing well. And I'll talk to you then.